Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 27 of the North Meet South web podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the North Meets South web podcast. Today we have a special show. We have only done this one time before where we actually have four people on the show at the same time. So back again from last week, we have Mr. TJ Miller. TJ, thanks for coming on again. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. And then as promised, last time we talked about having on Mr. Paul Redmond and he has uh, joined us on the show today. So thanks for coming on, Paul. Hey guys, it's really nice to be uh, chatting with y'all. So yeah, appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. For uh, people who might not be familiar with you and really for me as well, we're only really recent friends on Twitter. Um, I actually just saw for the first time today, like probably five minutes ago that you live in Scottsdale, Arizona. So I was pretty excited about that. I have a really good friend. Here's the backstory. This is a really good friend that has been like in my small group Bible study for the last like eight years. We've had our first kids, our second kids, our third kids all together. They're like all our kids are close, we're really close. And we moved five minutes away from him. On Monday, we move in and we're five minutes away from them. And then they tell us that they're moving to Phoenix, right by Scottsdale. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't be leaving now. We're just, we just got here. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm sure I'll be going down there to visit. And Paul, we might get a chance to hang out in the future, man. I would love that. It would be awesome. I could show you around, show you the desert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I hear uh, RailsConf it, is actually going on down there right now, right? Yeah, that's that's right. In downtown Phoenix, I was kind of wishing Laracon could be here, but I think it's usually in uh, it's in July, so that would be pretty bad. It would be like 120. So <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, is it really that hot? Uh, well, that it could get that hot, but generally it's like 115 or so. Oh um, my word! Do you have a pool? Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank Fortunately. God. Fortunately. Quick question: only Is 115. it? Yeah, only 115. <laughs> is it uh, a saltwater pool or is it like a chlorine pool? It's a chlorine pool. Yep. Okay. All right. I am a brand new pool homeowner. I've never done this before. So I am learning <laughs> all of the ins and outs of pool stuff. Mm. So we may be talking for more than just web related stuff in the near future. Nice. Here. Well, maybe you, you might know a little more than I do. I pay somebody to fit, do my pool. So, <laughs> well, maybe I need to pick up a couple more side jobs or something and make that happen. I don't know. <laughs> Man, now uh, that you got a pool, I'm, I'm, I'm coming over. <laughs> yeah, dude, for sure. You guys are all welcome. Pool party at my house anytime you want. If you, if yeah, any yeah. guys make the trek to Central Illinois, you are more than welcome to use my pool. <laughs> all right, um, I will be there in July. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, sounds good, man. Paul, for uh, you know, like I was just saying, actually, a couple minutes ago, for those of us who might not be familiar with you or what you do or where you work or whatever, uh, would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure. Um, so I just switched jobs. I've I've been programming a long time, but uh, I was most recently at a place called Chino's Media. It's when when I tell people where I, I worked at, you know, you get a lot of eyebrows and stuff just because it's like a women's interest site and it's very specific audience. But I started there back in 2009, yeah, and just doing custom programming, you know, PHP, but pretty much everything. <laughs> um, it's a pretty high scale, so I got... Uh, I learned kind of on the job just how to scale, you know, websites to serve, you know, 60 million visits Holy a month. Cow. And, you know, Seriously. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, just across all of our platforms. But anyway, I I just switched jobs. So now I'm, I'm at a startup. It's kind of in the uh, post startup phase where they're starting to scale and grow. It's a little ad tech agency called Freestar. And what we do is 
basically build ad tech products and we run an ad network. We're close to, I think, about a billion impressions. We're, we're, we're getting close to that number of uh, ad impressions that happen. So uh, what's really cool about that is um, when you hear ad tech, it, I don't know, that kind of turns some developers off, but actually what we're doing is uh, um, actual ad tech products and we have kind of a playground or you know a place to do that with our audience and the, the people that, uh, you know, our customers um, where we can like, you know, build ad tech products and give them really good service. So we can take a site and increase its revenue, you know, just by putting in some of our technology. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. Uh, when I started there about a couple months ago, it was pretty much a greenfield. Like I was the first developer. So I got to pick a lot of the tech stack that we went in with and, uh, very nice. Probably do a whole another episode on all that. But, uh, anyway, uh, my background is pretty diverse. I, you know, started as a, uh, I started as a uh, front end developer designer back when in the Zeldman days, I was actually my first book was the orange Zeldman book. So I learned all about web standards and my mind was blown and that kind of interested me. So I started doing like a lot of front end design and then kind of merged back into uh, PHP and WordPress and cake PHP is what I picked up. That was my first MVC framework. Very cool. I'm going to interrupt just real quick. Sure. Michael and uh, TJ, do you guys know who Zeldman is? Oh, <laughs> Michael, you know who Zeldman is? Mr. The Jeffrey Zeldman? The, the yeah. name's familiar to me. Oh my word. Jeffrey Zeldman. <laughs> Let me just say, I'm going to tweet him. He is far and away the man. Oh my gosh. That dude he's is the, amazing. He's the JavaScript guy, right? No, he's the HTML standards guy from like back in the day. Like he <laughs> was like the, the standards same. dude. What was the name of his book? Do you remember? Paul? Designing name with web book? standards. Yeah. Designing with web standards. Him and Eric Myers, uh, who is Eric Myers is like the god of CSS, the godfather of CSS, right? And Jeffrey Zeldman is like web standards. And so uh, <laughs> I've been to a couple of their uh, an event apart mm -hmm. events and gotten to meet him. And uh, wow, he's just a super, super cool dude. So uh, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew who that was. If they don't know, any, if any listeners yeah, don't know is. who Jeffrey Zeldman is, you definitely need to pay homage to this man. He is amazing. Was was that back in the day, Jake, when there was only one web standard? <laughs> like, like now we've um, got maybe 400 of them? <laughs> I think really what it was, was, um, you know, he was really after like semantic HTML. This was when a bunch of people were like hacking around all sorts of crap and like nobody really cared. And he was very much mm -hmm. after like, okay, we need to set a standard and like everybody needs to follow the standard. And if you don't, then you're harming the web essentially. Like we kind of need to all adhere to this. And, you know, even com has come out of that with some of like accessible web sort of stuff. Uh, he's big on that as well, making the web accessible. So anyway, I just wanted to I just wanted to take a quick pause and just make sure all of our listeners know who this man is, because he is, you know, one of those guys who was, you know, way back in the day that really set uh, did a lot of hard work to get us to where we're at now. So big shout out to Mr. Jeffrey Zeldman. Thank you. Yeah, Paul, sorry, you can keep going. So uh, and just just aside from that, too, my second book after that was Dan Cedarholm's first book. Web Standard Solutions, and that book was just as amazing and blew my mind. It was kind of taking what Zeldman did and making it practical and showing you tricks back then that were like almost impossible to do in the browser. And it just it was mind blowing to me at the time. Right now, it's we you know we have HTML web fonts and stuff like that. And back then, you you kind of had to have those fancy fonts be images and kind of use these you know <laughs> support these hacky browsers and stuff. So. Yeah, that's kind of those were my roots, and uh, that's when I started. Was when that movement was happening. It was a really cool time to be a developer, and just you know, I started yep, writing tables, uh, table yep, sites. So that. that's it kind of dates me a little bit. <laughs> but uh, so, so kind of my my reason for joining or you know becoming a web developer was uh, primarily just I love the medium. You know, um, 
I was probably 22 when I picked it up. I was doing some technical engineering uh, stuff and apprentice apprenticeship in like mechanical engineering. And I was just married, and one one day I came home and used Notepad to build an HTML page, you know, just like a hello world, and uh, published it on, I don't remember where, but it just blew my mind that I could just so quickly build something and share it with somebody. So it was, I, I take it for granted now, but it was really fascinating to me at the time. So that's that's really what drives me even today. It's just how powerful the medium is, and I try to remember that when, you know, I'm, I'm developing that we just have this great power in our hands now with all of these cool technologies. Uh, and the real goal is communication. And so I try to kind of ground myself in that when, with everything I do. So that's very cool. Yeah, very cool. So how long, uh, how long have you been doing Laravel? And, you know, this show is loosely kind of built around that. I say loosely, it's probably pretty strictly based on that. You know, that's how Michael and I connected was really through yeah. Laravel. So we talk about a lot of Laravel stuff. Of course, we've, we're trying to expand our horizons a little bit, but uh, how long have you been using Laravel? Uh, what version did you start with? That's a great question. Um, so I started out, like I said, with CakePHP, and even today, some of the sites that I'm scaling to millions of visitors were running CakePHP 1.3. But uh, So I started with that, and then as a group, we started picking up Symfony 2 and Symfony components. We started introducing like namespaces into Cake 1.3 back in the day and, um, you know, kind of PSR zero auto loading stuff, it, you know, was just coming around then. So I started picking up the Symphony components and uh, Symphony 2. But the one thing that made me almost become a Rails developer was just the the community around the Rails uh, ecosystem and uh, DHH. I just, I love his mentality and the way he approaches software engineering. And I, I literally started putting requisitions out just to become a junior developer to learn uh, Rails and Ruby, because I, I still love the language, but uh, that's to the point where I was with PHP. I was like, I'm just kind of done. This is, you know, it's, it's just not interesting anymore. And then some somehow, I don't remember how, I just got connected with Laracasts, and I yeah. think that's a pretty common story. So I started listening to Jeffrey Way, and I think it was right on the verge of the end of Laravel 4. So I came right in at the, a great time, you know, and even to this day, when I show developers Laravel, they're like, man, this this is PHP, but it feels like I'm writing Rails in some way, you know, uh, not exactly the same, but mm -hmm. it's just a lot of the same cool paradigms. So I think it's really funny that we both kind of parallel in the fact that we got our, our you know, start with MVCs with Cake and then almost immediately jump to Rails. How long were you yeah. using Cake for before you before you found Laravel? I mean, it sounds like probably quite a while. Yeah, huh? I mean, uh, back in like probably 2006 or so, and then we started picking up Symphony in about 2009 when it was uh, like Symphony 2 was first coming out, and I just found like, and there's no offense to Symphony, it's still a great framework, but it's very verbose. So and it's, it's some of the decision making in like when should I build a bundle and which bundle does this thing belong in. That stuff just had a lot of mental overhead for our, our group of developers, and so Laravel was kind of a breath of fresh air because it's so opinionated, uh, yet it kind of gets out of your way if you want it to. So in that way, in just dealing with like annotations in Symfony, that was kind of the way around a lots of YAML config was using annotations, and hmm. it just never felt right to me. So yeah, it feels really awkward. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, you know, I did have a MVC framework. I've told I've told the story a little bit before. Like I started with CodeIgniter and had no idea what I was doing, totally abused that thing really horribly. And then, you know, I think, you know, it does interest me to know or to like think of the parallel universe in which Jeffrey Way doesn't exist and to think of how popular Laravel would be without his influence. Taylor is certainly an incredible developer and like he has built a really amazing product. 
He's a great hype man too. He does a lot of wonderful marketing. Like he he gets a lot yeah. of things right, the documentation. He does a really good job of like teasing features. Like we're all on the edge of our seats waiting for Horizon. We all want to know what it is. Master of the tease. <laughs> yeah, he is. So he's great at that. But nobody is better at like screencasts than Jeffrey Way. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of developers have learned even from like when he was at NetTuts. Like jQuery, I learned Net, I, I learned jQuery from Jeffrey Way. Like you know, he was the one who got me started on that path. Like I owe a lot to him. And I feel like a lot of developers do too, uh, especially the ones who use Laravel because so many of us have gotten into Laravel because of Laracasts. So yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting to hear that that was the path for you as well. And really that was what made it possible for me to get into Laravel. Uh, I had a project, a new project that I was like starting Greenfield project. And I was like, uh, what do I want to stick with CodeIgniter or do I want to go with Laravel? And I was like, well, there's this new Laracast site and like he pretty much walks you through everything. I'm going to try this out. And if it wouldn't have been for that, there's no way, no way I would have made it. So, yeah. So I also, I guess I, I kind of incorrectly, besides that, I was kind of doing that on my own. Um, we started needing some microservices that she knows when I was working there. And so I kind of wanted to introduce Laravel, but it was an API. So it made sense to use Lumen. So, and that had just come out. So um, I kind of got my kick on uh, Lumen from building a little service that she knows at my former employer. And, um, so I was like, man, this is really awesome. I feel like I'm writing Laravel, but just the API layer. And it's the same. It's like everything mm -hmm. feels the same. There's a few little differences, but it's I can switch to this and write APIs and be really efficient. And then I can switch to Laravel for web apps. So um, I, anyway, I started penning a book and I owe just a ton to like Taylor. He just tweeted out my book a couple times. And, you know, that day I got a lot of, of sales just from his ability to, you know, audience and I'd it really humbled me just because, you know, he's a busy guy and he just, there's lots of people probably asking him to recommend things. And he just tweeted out a couple of times and I was just so grateful for that. It, it really encouraged me as a first time writer, first time in this community. This community just kind of blows my mind just with uh, how nice people are in it. You know, Jeff, Jeffrey Way is so empathetic in his teaching style. And I, I, you know, I just, I really appreciate that he can empathize with the learners, you know, that he has, he's not overly, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, he, he's not so uh, condescending. It's just, I've been here too, you know, and this is just some, there's like five different ways you can do this mm -hmm. thing. It's just, I yep, find it he's really been able to. He's one of those rare people, which is kind of like Taylor, where they can know so much and still remember what it's like to be the, uh, the beginner. I always found that, so I actually studied to be a high school math teacher, and I always found that challenging, right? I was like, I could teach calculus. Have me try and teach a kid to add, I can't do it. Like, I just can't. Like, I, I you know, my mind doesn't go back that far. And, you know, even even sometimes with algebra stuff, it was just like, man, you just have to know this. Like, I can't teach you this. Like, this is just something you just have to know. So it does really take, it's a very, it's a very um, gr small group of people who are able to have a vast knowledge of a of a set of subject matter and still be able to put themselves in the shoes of the beginner. And Taylor and Jeffrey have definitely nailed that. That's a skill set that they that they uh, have in spades. I wanted to ask real quickly, TJ and Michael, have you guys ever used Lumen for anything? Um, yeah, I did play around with it for a couple of microservices. Um, I think I've spoken about on, on the show before that we've had a lot of um, Drupal stuff that we had developed by an offshore team. And we didn't really have any onshore, like within our team, we didn't have any experience with it. So I set about sort of picking apart the creative way that Drupal builds databases with, you know, one table for each field and all of its language mappings and then used Lumen to build a faster API. So we didn't have to boot up 
the entire of Drupal in order just to serve this, um, you know, simple JSON API. So that's probably the only place I've really used it. But it's, you know, if that's all you're doing, um, it's it's incredible. As soon as you start thinking, gee, I wish I had Blade here or gee, I wish I had this, you know, other thing that's not enabled or available as Lumen, um, it's very quick to sort of reach for and then and transfer to Laravel. So I think it's really nice that that you can do that. I kind of wish Laravel had like an install parameter that you could just say, just do the yeah. API version of Laravel. Yeah. And because it feels a lot like Lumen's a bit neglected and it probably not intentionally, but the, you know, there's not, not much to add to it really. It sort of just sits there and I like to call it feature complete really. So here are the things that I think are not necessarily like Lumen killers, but like between OpCache and PHP 7, you've got so much performance difference between that and what it was on like five six that i mean the amount of requests that a that a default laravel install can handle is just yeah. i mean you would really have to be doing and paul maybe could speak to this because he's you know he's got however six bajillion trillion million visitors a month or whatever uh, <laughs> i've never had that type of traffic you know mine are like if i get a hundred a day i'm like oh my gosh i'm gonna be a millionaire you know but but I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, Laravel is so sufficient for even those projects where you do just need an API layer. It comes with a little extra, I'll call it cruft. I mean, that's probably a condescending term. It's not meant to be, but you, you get what I'm saying. It's like, you know, I like extra things that you don't need. But um, but anyway, okay, well, guys, I'm going to, we, we could talk about all this stuff for forever. TJ, I wanted to give you a chance to answer real quick. Ever used Lumen? Yeah, you know, I think out of the three or four sites, so like APIs that I built with Lumen, Three quarters of them were upgraded to uh, to Laravel. Yep, same here. The other one stayed in Lumen. But honestly, when I'm looking for something real thin for microservice, I I reach for Node. I I don't know why. It's just like the first thing I grab for. So do you use Express with that? Typically, yeah. Lately, I've been using uh, Zeet's like Micro, which is their like new super ultra lightweight like single endpoint hmm. Node okay. service. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, most most of the microservice stuff. I don't know why. Like whenever I go to reach for something small, I end up building something with Node and Express. Yeah, it feels Node stuff feels lighter weight for some reason. I don't know why that is. I, I get the same feeling though too. Like if it's like if I need something really lightweight, I'm gonna do something Node. Yeah, you can you can put it together pretty quick. I mean, I think out of the box you get security a little easier with Lumen than you do with with Express. You kind of got to know what you're doing when you get into Express security wise, but. I uh, know. I think. Uh, I think somewhat recently, I heard mm-hmm. J Mac, uh, Jason McCreary, talking about kind of his his thoughts on on Lumen and where he thinks that Laravel might be going, as far as like Lumen kind of getting sunsetted, and because of all the stuff that Michael just talked about, you know, the the PHP seven and OpCache, you know, we're probably going to run into something with Laravel that it's it is kind of like a flag that you get this stripped down version. In Laravel, yeah, and we can talk about a little. I mean, really, that fits really nicely in with kind of these front end presets that we've even that we talked about on uh, Laravel News the other day, which are being released in five five, where you can say, you know, do a front end preset of none, and it'll strip out Bootstrap and Vue and all that stuff. I'm not saying that necessarily that you'd be able to say like API only, but maybe who knows? You know, I'm not sure if that kind of expands beyond what those front end presets are are really meant to do. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's something you, you could see happening in the future. Yeah. You know, I thought that the, the new symphony stuff that came out with the new version at symphony, like the new philosophy that they're kind of taking with that. I think, I think it'd be kind of cool to see 
yeah, Laravel kind of go that way where it's, uh, I don't know if you guys ever have played with mm-hmm. the, the view CLI where you kind of have those, like you do like view and knit, and then you have a couple of different options to choose from as far as like starters. You've got Webpack, Browserfy, like a light version of Webpack. That might be kind of cool. You know, you kind of initialize the project with, you know, a list of features that you want with it. You know, I want like, oh, I want Laravel yeah. API. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. I think if that happens, then Taylor's going to be bringing on somebody else. I don't know. You know, it's like, it's just so much to maintain. You know, even what he's got out there right now is just a crazy crap ton of stuff to maintain. So, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm going to move us on because it's been 23 minutes already. And yeah. we literally have not even mentioned what this show was supposed to be all about. This is exactly what happened last time. So <laughs> TJ very graciously put together a little hit yeah. list for us and said, these are the things we need to talk about this episode. So we're going to try and get to that. So This kind of started on Twitter as a little bit of a flame war, if you will. I was talking about guzzle and TJ said, uh, like hashtag never guzzle uh, or something like that. And um, it's like, why? Like what's wrong with guzzle? Why why is guzzle so bad? I thought this was like the standard PHP thing to use. He's like, yeah, it's fine if you want to deal with all that, that weight, you know? And so uh, I was like, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And then I had said something about not using version six. Because there's version 5 and then there's version 6. And I was like, yeah, I use version 5.3. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're using 5? It's not even supported anymore. It is. It is supported still. It is. But that's why you don't hate it as much as we do, I think. Correct. Correct. And so version 6 is the whole PSR 7 thing, which is like uh, the middleware is blah, 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 garbage, whatever. And Paul knows about that and I don't. (laughs) And so he wrote an article on it and said, hey, guys, you should check this out. It's really not that bad converting to Guzzle 6 once you understand these middlewares. And I was like, yeah, that's way outside the scope of what I even need to know about this thing. I mean, that's way, it was really, uh, it was much more advanced than the usage that I have. So that kind of roped us all into this whole conversation. And Michael was in there in the Never Guzzle camp as well. And uh, since that time, really what it's kind of been is we've all been researching some of these different uh, HTTP request abstractions that you have available in PHP. And we've kind of got a list of them. And we're going to talk about pros and cons and and uh, what we're using them for, and basically that's it. So this is this is the name of the chat that we have in Telegram is Guzzle Battle, and so this has been scheduled for a month, and uh, I am woefully unprepared. So I'm sure I'm gonna get I'm gonna get uh, you know what do they say? You guys are gonna wipe the floor with me in the in the chat. You guys said like if the Guzzle crushing goes faster than you know uh, than we uh, think, then we can move on to other things. I think that's what you said. So I guess I guess to kind of kick it off, like. How familiar are you guys with PR, PSR7? Not. Not familiar. Paul? You know, I, I'm using it just because it's required in Guzzle 6, but I really like I really don't feel like it creates a ton of value. Like, I don't know. It's easy just to, you know, not worry about it. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think it adds as much value as, like, the, the other PSRs that are out there. No, no offense to the people that work on it. It's just... For me personally, I yeah. just, you know, I just need to learn how to use the library and then great, you know, use it. Like I'm not dropping in other things to work with it that are interoperable with uh, PSR7. So maybe I'm... Who wants to take the torch on this one and explain to yeah. myself and all of our other listeners what PSR7 is and what the advantage is? And um, I mean, I'm aware, but let's... Who wants to hash this out for us? Michael, Michael maybe you can take this one. Uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel that PSR7 is just... it. I, I read through the spec really trying to wrap my head around it and it was I don't know, it just feels really convoluted. So, and, so Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what Michael Scott does yeah. in the office and say, explain this to me like I'm a five year old. <laughs> so help me out. Explain this to me like I'm a five year old. What is PSR seven? All right. So so here's the thing. 
everyone, I say everyone in in air quotes, um, was was basically using Symphony HTTP Foundation for messaging. It was it was kind of like the de facto. This is how we're going to send HTTP messages, and this is what responses look like, and this this is what requests look like. Of course, nobody's going to standardize on something that that Symphony has done purely because it's like this this thing over there, and we've got the PHP fig, and I'm relatively sure. And I hope I don't get this wrong, but I'm relatively sure that Bo Simonson spent a lot of time on this amongst others. So basically what it is, is just, it's, it was a, a recommendation around describing common interfaces for representing HTTP messages. So, um, you know, you're looking at requests, we're looking at responses. So requests that you're making to the server as well as responses, as well as middleware. Yeah, it's really... It seems really confusing. I started going down the path of like trying to figure out PSR7 because I had a bunch of HTTP request stuff to test and I wanted to try to use it for like mocking and, and being able to pass stuff through. And I don't know. I just, it's tough. Yeah. So here's what, I, here's what I'll say. This was kind of my, because I'm very pragmatic about this stuff. I don't really particularly care if PSR7 is the way to go. Great. I will use that. If it's not the way to go, I don't. I don't hold, it doesn't hold any value for me. That's fine. Like I, I am not at all committed to like, oh, I'm going to put a notch in my belt because I know what PSR 7 is and I'm using it. It does not matter to me at all. If it makes my life easier, I'll do it. In this case, PSR 7 has not been that. Hmm. And so I'm like guzzle 5.3 all the way. <laughs> so really when I started needing this was when we ended up having a couple pieces of architecture in our building that were very tightly coupled to the file system or to Microsoft Active Directory. I did not want these pieces of code that were tightly coupled to these, these basically these resources being sprinkled throughout all of my code bases. So for example, I needed to authenticate my users and I needed to do this in a very specific way that was allowing me to let users log back in using a token instead of their credentials back to AD. So I needed to have basically a microservice that I could use to authenticate with all of my applications for inside our building. So naturally, I basically, I built this microservice and now I need a way to interact with this. Well, curl is not ideal. And uh, I was on the hunt for some sort of abstraction library that would let me do this. And Guzzle was the first one that I came across. I was like, oh yeah, this looks really cool. So I started using it. Um, the way that I use it is I will define a base class called a gateway. A gateway is the noun that I will use to define basically what it is that I'm doing. The gateway acts as my, uh, what's the word? I mean, it's just a gatekeeper between my application and the HTTP requests that I'm going to make out. So I have a base class that is called base gateway. In there, I will say that in the constructor, I need to pass in a client and that will be pretty much it. If I need any helper methods, great, that's fine. Uh, the helper methods that I would put on there would probably be something like attach a listener for for the Guzzle client that would allow me to very quickly test these things in my test. I can attach a listener and then it will spit back out to me what I what requests I made without actually making them. Then I will create something like uh, my AD auth gateway. It will extend that base gateway and I will pass in a client which defines the URL endpoint I'm going to use as well as the token that I would use, the API token that I would use to authenticate with that endpoint from my server that I'm using. So that was my original use case for this. It made it really nice because we just very recently had to swap out uh, one of these servers 
So the endpoints for every single one of my applications changed and every single one of my applications is using this. So I made it really simple. I said, oh yeah, I have this one gateway. I have to change the URL in one place. And it was a piece of cake. Nothing failed. Everything worked perfectly. So that one single layer of abstraction did wonders for me. And that was literally all I needed. So that's that's really where I'm at with it. I don't particularly care if it's Guzzle, if it's HTTP full, if it's this requests package that we're talking about. That was my use case, and that's what worked well for me. And the one other thing that it afforded me, which was pretty cool, was these, this ability to attach listeners and basically mock requests out. So I could, in my test, say, hey, make this gateway, but don't actually make the requests. What you should do is just return a 200 when, it, when I make a request to this gateway. And then let me inspect what my request was. So make sure that the URL that I'm hitting is correct. Make sure that I'm including all these post parameters, et cetera. So it made it really easy for me to test. So those are my two big things that were my reasoning for choosing Guzzle. The documentation was great. It's widely used. So that's me. All right, tear me apart. I think I think I guess the other big thing that, that really um, got me caught up when they went to Guzzle 6 and started using PSR 7 is also the streams. Like everything is a stream. There's no like just, there was no simple way to deal with stuff. Like with Guzzle 5, you could just get the JSON from the response and it would come back to you as a, you know, as a parsed object. Where now you've got to like, nest the stream and you've got to you know do all this other stuff i guess it made the simple use cases trickier i think than it needed to be like as you found jake when you went from guzzle 5 to guzzle 6 it got a lot more difficult just to do a simple request and get the response and then deal with that in your application right yeah it broke it all it broke everything yeah and here's one more beef i'll say and i'll shut up because i know i talk a lot they changed this was the stupidest thing you could possibly change when you're creating a new client Okay, they changed the key that you use from URL to URI. Now, you tell me when you are switching from Guzzle 5 to Guzzle 6 that that's going to be an easy one to catch. It doesn't even like there's no backwards compatibility at all. How difficult would it have been to say, hey, if you're using URL, throw some sort of exception warning that says, hey, you're using URL. You might want to change that to URI. I mean, you can't look at that in your code and very, I mean, I and L are super similar. It's not going to be something you're going to catch right off the bat. Like that seems to me almost like malicious. Like why yeah, would you not why would you do that? Yeah. Well, that's when you start using the giant shield of semantic versioning. And then I don't I I haven't used 6 at all. 5 just it hurt, so I I haven't even tried it. I know I had to catch like too many exceptions and I was like this is too verbose. I'm I'm out. I think the other interesting thing with with the PSR 7 is that this is in like the first section of describing the, the PSR and it's that HTTP messages are typically abstracted from the end user consumer, but as developers, we typically need to know how they are structured and how to access or manipulate them in order to perform our tasks. And it goes, no, all I want to do is get some data from an endpoint and then manipulate it. I don't, I don't need to know about all this other stuff. I think, and I think we're spoiled a lot by Laravel because Laravel makes things as simple as possible for us as like consumers of that kind of data to just, you know, use it instead of worrying about all of this deeper level sort of streams and like interfaces for things. And realistically, I still think that the Symphony HTTP foundation thing is enough for a lot of cases. For a lot of cases is probably the key word that we're after there. That's that is probably the difference. And that is probably why Guzzle 6 exists because they were not interested in, you know, Guzzle 6 aims to be 
the standard. Like it is the one. It um it, you know, and if you're wanting to be that, you kind of have to be everything to all people and unfortunately, you will probably leave behind you have to leave behind somebody because you can't be you can't do all of that stuff and be concerned with all of those things that people who are using it at a really high level need to use it at and keep all of the nice little features that make it super easy for the people who literally just need an abstraction. So maybe that's a good time for Paul to kind of jump in here. Paul, what are, you know, how are you using Guzzle? What are the what are some of the things that you use Guzzle 6 for and um, you know, how have you found it helpful? So uh, I guess I could preface it a little bit with I've been using Guzzle since like version 3. Um, maybe dating myself again. <laughs> um, so with Guzzle 3 back in the day, uh, and I'm not usually one for configuration, but you could define an entire uh, API spec with um, you know, a Swagger style document in JSON. So you didn't even really need to build out much of the client. You just, you knew up the client, you give it this basically like swagger style document and make requests on it. So it was really cool. And, you know, just quickly building out an API as long as you didn't need a lot of custom stuff. Now, quick question. I'm sorry. That's, that's as the, that would be the side that is going to be responding to requests or that is what you're using to make requests. So um, for instance, um, back a, a while back ago, we were integrating with an Uyala is a, a video provider. Maybe you've heard of them, but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Um, we needed to interface with their, you know, API. So we built uh, uh, a new Yala client, and a lot of that client was just JSON documentation that the Guzzle, uh, you know, the Guzzle client, uh, config. you configure the Guzzle client to use that document. And so we were able to quickly, you know, get out the uh, API endpoints that we needed. One of the big challenges when you're using HTTP clients to interact with services is services are moving at such a fast pace now, especially with like more SOA and microservice architectures. It's impossible as a developer to keep up with an API, uh, especially if you're like open sourcing a client that interacts with say GitHub. It's a it's not a small task. So anyway, that back in the day that was really nice. Uh, as long as the HTTP requests were really simple, you define the endpoint, uh, the params that it would accept, what type it was, whether it was a Git or a post, and what. Uh, and there, th- this whole other aspect of uh, modeling the data when you get it back, so you get back an object that kind of a model, if you will. So that's kind of a backstory of um, like you know how it used to be. Michael Dowling, the author, is really really smart. He's a great developer. I've followed him for a while. Um, he knows curl really really well, like the PHP implementation of it. So there's there's a lot of like Stack Overflow questions if you look at just like curl timeouts and stuff like that, where I've, I've, I've stumbled upon those for one reason or another supporting legacy applications and noticed that he was helping people figure out like, you know, how, how do curl timeouts work, etc. So that's one of the reasons why, I, I mean, maybe it's just like an old shoe, you know, you just stick with something and why, you know, why introduce another dependency if you've already been using it. Uh, but, you know, it, it seems to have worked really well. Um, so uh, I will say this, though. If you're using Guzzle 5, which I did on my little Lumen service, I built, the Lumen service I first built was an Apple News API. So all of our publishers could talk to this service, and the service would queue up uh, jobs and go publish uh, and transform documents into Apple's JSON format and then push them out to Apple and publish them. So we were using... Uh, you know, Guzzle for that, but it's Guzzle 5 and I would never upgrade it, you know, unless <laughs> Guzzle was like end of life and we needed to support it, support it a long time. So that's one thing. 
I will say I won't upgrade from five to six if there's a project already using five. Yeah, going back to those web services, um, I I had never come across them until I was doing some work a couple of weeks ago with what was the API? You were doing some WordPress stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah, I was using the WordPress.org API, and I, I you know I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel there, so I went onto packages and I found this library. And it was calling all these methods that just didn't exist anywhere. And it, as you say, it was defined in this service description. And it was just a giant array that said, this method name, this endpoint, this is, you know, you post or you get or whatever. And this is how you model the response. And I thought that is really cool if what you want to do is build a client for an existing API and you want to expose the whole thing. That is not documented anymore. It still works in Guzzle 5 and Guzzle 6, but the 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 documentation that contains the information on how that works is going back to like Guzzle 3. My gosh. So in the instances where you're going to hit like another API like that, I can see 100% the value of using Guzzle. But if I just want to hit a single endpoint to get some JSON, all I want to do is file, get contents and, you know, URL.json. And that's that's enough for those cases, I think. <laughs> this web service client stuff makes me really frustrated because I literally had no idea this existed. In Guzzle. No, that's exactly right. Because it hasn't been documented for how many years? With with file get to- contents, you do have to be careful that your configuration is proper or you're, you could get a really long timeout. So that's another thing that I think Guzzle gets really well is the configuration for timeouts is really solid, uh, both for connecting and finishing the request. Um, you know, I think I, I've been there lots of times with like legacy homegrown PHP applications where it's using file get contents and then maybe the service went away. And why is this page taking yeah. like 60 seconds to uh, load? Well, it's because there's a 60 second timeout yeah. and it finally fails, you know. No, and of course. And, so. and I don't particularly <laughs> mind. Yeah, I don't particularly mind like Guzzle's exceptions, to be honest with you. Once you mm-hmm. get used to them, they're actually very, very useful. Like, I mean. It's really nice when you when it fails and it's like, oh yeah, of course, of course, that's what's yeah. happening. It's very clear exactly what happened. You can see what was ha- well, you know, what endpoint it was trying to request, what response it got back, and then if you really need to catch those, it's very simple to do so. You know, you can catch a client exception, or you can know you can catch a bad request exception, yeah. or whatever, and and handle it. No big deal. Yeah, of course, everything has its place. So it's nice to not have to. It's nice to not have to get the request and be like, oh, okay. By the way, did the you know, what was the response code a 200? No. Was it a 300? Yeah. No. Was it a 400? Well, no. Was it a 404? No. Was it a 500? You know, and handle all those manually. I'd rather just say like, blow up, let me catch it if something does blow up and then, you know, go yeah, from there. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah. um, so one, one way I'm using Guzzle 6, and I think it's been mentioned lots by lots of developers I've seen on Twitter, they're missing the JSON method because, you know, we're all consuming JSON APIs. One thing I've done to kind of get around that uh, is I just abstract the client behind mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. own client. Um, so I build out the requests in the background, and then they catch all those handy exceptions that need to be handled or even rethrows them depending on how I just want the code to function sure. and flow. But uh, basically wrap everything. You can even wrap the response and then do all of your extra stuff. That doesn't give you the interoperability of you know, PSR seven in the end, but uh, I, I don't no. care, honestly. I just want yeah, to Yeah, and I had done, done that with Guzzle 5 yeah. even for, again, that same Drupal API before I rewrote that the endpoints in Lumen because I controlled that side of it. The API client that I wrote, I was, you know, here is a base entity that represents some object coming back. And then I just extended from that for each thing. And I was basically modeling it manually again because I didn't know about this, this server stuff. So, but with file get contents, 
I would use it like if it is a single endpoint, if it's a throwaway project, if it's a little thing, everything, everything has its place. And, and, you know, as developers, we are smart enough to know which knives we can play with without cutting ourselves. So, <laughs> so let's, yeah. So TJ, tell us maybe a little bit about, we've talked a little bit about how, how we use guzzle and, and maybe some of the, even the more advanced use cases, Paul can get into a little bit later talking about middlewares and things like that. But you've introduced me to some really cool libraries that basically allow you to do something almost as simple as file get contents, but have a little bit more, um, you know, security and a little bit more of those concerns kind of uh, baked in and abstracted behind the scenes. But they make it extremely simple to get up and running. I mean, in literally zero time. So maybe you want to talk about or mention a couple of those libraries that you've sent to me. Yeah. So I'll mention the one that I haven't used first because there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's this requests library. Um, I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes. I haven't looked at it much. I've heard some rumblings about it. It looks pretty neat. Um, it's very straightforward. I know it seems pretty cool. I stumbled across it to kind of doing some prep work for the show. Yeah, I don't know. It looks it looks like it's just a, a nice wrapper around curl. Yeah, and literally, I mean, it's it's very... <sighs> You know, for me, curl, I always have to look up like, okay, what's the header I need to set? Like, okay, how do I do that again? Curl opt set or whatever, you know. And this thing, it literally says in, in the examples, it shows like headers, pass an array, options, pass an array, and then you would just say requests, get, pass the URL, and then uh, pass in the headers and the options, and you're done. That's yep. it. So very, very straightforward, you know. I'm sure, I mean, that's like the basics and I'm sure it can scale up to do a couple more complicated things. But, you know, like Michael said, like if you're on like a working on like a throwaway project and you don't want to like pull in guzzle, uh, you could, you could discover this package, install it and be using it in probably under five minutes. It's not complicated at all for what it, for what it is. Uh, I can definitely see using this. Yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on the one that I use the most. And this is the one that I kind of, I think, responded to you on Twitter about. And I think uh, Michael was in the same boat with uh, full. I love it. I think it feels very much in the uh, in the vein of, of Laravel, where it's all fluent. It's very expressive in, in what you want to do. So, like, let's say you need to set the headers for... Um, accepting you know an application json response and then actually going on and decoding that json when it comes back through uh you just pass you know uh, the accepts json fluent method and i know it just it it reads like english it's great yep it does and if you look at the if you go look at the code out there it says you know request get url expects json with x trivial header send i mean you can literally read it just like a sentence and it totally makes sense what you're saying so I think that is the absolutely the um, the point of it. They've mm-hmm. they've tried to make it readable English code, you know, which is a yeah, and it does it does all sorts of it does all sorts of auth custom headers. You can actually do uh, you know pass in custom parsing as closures. So instead of you know parsing JSON, you could mm-hmm. parse it however you want. Uh, my work we have we do a lot with uh, like a SOAP XML API. It works great with XML too. You can even do templates so you can, you know, one of the things that I did in a, a project recently is in the service provider, I actually build out a, a template and then I can pass that as a dependency into like basically my gateway and have everything all structured out, have all my custom parsers in there, all my custom headers, you know, hydrated with, you know, session information. It's really nice. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. So TJ, um, does this have like default uh, header configs and stuff like that? And can you like define like a base URL? I was kind of looking for that in, in the documentation. I didn't. I wasn't sure. If you uh, I think that's a little bit what you were talking about with like templates, right? The yeah, the templates you can do. Uh, yeah, you can basically structure out you know a, a standard set of things, and and pass that through. Like all right, everything I want to default to accepting JSON because I'm working with a JSON API. I don't like globally, I don't want to, you know, verify, you know, with strict XML and you can override that per request, but it kind of sets all that stuff up as a base. Yeah. So it's like, you can say, you can say template equals request in it, and then you can send through all of the defaults that you would want. And then you would again later, you know, maybe in Laravel or something in your service provider, you'd bind that to the container and then you would, you know, get that out of the mm -hmm. container later when you needed to use it. Yeah. For me, it's... Uh, you know, my, my gateways that I have, it, it gets bound to the container just by the fact that it's getting auto loaded, I suppose, you know, so I guess it's not in the container necessarily, but it's auto loaded. So I can, you can, I can utilize it anywhere just by, you know, using it at the top of my class. So with these, um, I think for me, that's why the, for my gateway is kind of the cleanest pattern for me is because I define that base URL and then Really, my gateway acts almost as like, you know, maybe what you would consider like a repo for a almost like a model, I guess. I've since changed. I don't really use that anymore. I don't really use repos a whole lot anymore. But my gateway will be I'll have AD auth gateway and then I'll say attempt with credentials. I'll make very simple, you know, plain English names in there and then just pass in the little pieces I need. Uh, so it makes it very clear exactly what I'm doing in all my code. And it gives me one. Yeah, you make kind of. Yeah, it gives me one place to let make all like that an SDK. Yep, I, exactly. That's exactly what it is. It, it makes a little SDK to my API. Yeah, and the cool thing about HTTP full too is if you really want to get into some like advanced configurations that they don't have, you know, like native methods for, you can actually modify the underlying curl. You can pass in like different curl configs to kind of change things oh, cool. up at a, a real low level. Cool. So it's macroable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so very cool. Paul, something that we had on the list here that we haven't talked about yet and that you can in fill me in on. What are Laravel container tags? <laughs> so um, I kind of got uh, picked up. I picked, picked up on this when I was doing Symphony 2. And there's a, there was a lot of cool use cases in Symphony 2 that I, I was a user of. Um, you know, you can tag different services for other services to consume. You know, so I'm building a service and I want to go get all the tags for, you know, say a middleware or whatever you're tagging, you know, that might have an interface attached to it. So the idea is any of the bundles in your Symfony app can tag and then you can immediately, cut, you know, add some functionality to some other service or some adapter of some kind. So I was kind of excited when I saw in the Laravel container that you could do tags and I've been itching for a way to use them. So there's a, there's a couple ideas in my head of why or how I might use them. For instance, right now I'm doing a ton of like report aggregation. We're using like Docker and we're using a little bit of Laravel Dusk to go grab data from porting websites and download them and analyze the data. So, you know, I might have a, like 15 different adapters and so th those are all tagged and now I can, my container is aware of them so I can even provide an interface for, you know, an admin interface to tie some functionality to that adapter, which I think is pretty powerful. It's kind Help of cool. me understand a little bit. So you have an adapter, which the adapter is basically acting as the translator between 
what you're trying to do and the specific website that you're scraping data from? Right. So think about it like uh, each maybe it's a CSV is a lot of the common formats that, that we'll go grab, but each format is different. So think of it like, you know, you have a caching interface and you might use Redis or Memcache. We're kind of doing the same pattern of uh, this, this report needs this adapter. And then there's some kind of manager cl class that takes that adapter and does stuff with it. So we kind of need to be aware of all the capabilities of these adapters. Um, it's kind of hard to explain without <laughs> giving you a better demonstration of the code. Yeah, I know. I know. That's uh, Michael says that on air all the time. He's like, we're not going to read code because it doesn't help anybody. <laughs> and uh... Right. But basically the, the idea is that, uh, you know, as you tag different services, you know, your container is now aware of them and you can do some pretty cool stuff with that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm still my head's in the clouds on this one. I can't. I can't wrap my head around it. And it sounds like what it sounds like to me as well is that you're excited about it because you're looking for a use case in which it fits. So that makes me right. feel better because it's not like, oh, everybody needs to know this because everybody should be using this. It's more like this is a really cool feature if you need it. Yeah. So I'm glad that mm -hmm. even though I don't understand it, it's probably okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's and def obviously I'm not I wouldn't recommend using them for everything. There are specific things that it can kind of do well sure yeah so with with the tags what's what's the advantage of using tags over you know just binding like a, a an interface you know a fully qualified interface to the container and then just grabbing that out maybe i don't understand but usually you can define in in the container you define an interface to an implementation so in this case there might be you know a collection of things that that could be tagged or used uh, depending on your configuration you might use it yeah for a specific interface you're saying or so what you're saying is instead of you know like an interface will you you would basically use a fully qualified like interface name and that can only be mm -hmm. tied to one thing but by using tags you could actually return you know like four or five things that are all related right. in one call so i think a good example here that, that i just thought of and i apologize in symphony you can the way that you can build a twig extension uh, when you want to build like some custom methods on the uh, templating part of symphony you can tag an extension and basically the twig engine will grab your extension and uh, initialize it so that now twig is aware of that uh, capability so, you know, you, let's say you want to build a little like link to or something helper and you would tag your service and then Twig would pick it up when it initializes Interesting. Twig. Interesting. And okay. It becomes, so, you know, an extension. So, huh. All right. Yeah, that does make a little more sense. So you can. I see. That makes a little yeah, more sense. You can utilize it to say like, hey, I have a bunch of these things that are tagged by this thing that are in the container and some other service could scoop them all up and say, you know what to do with these tagged items, like go do it. So any app service provider or any service provider that you have could yep. say, hey, I'm going to bind something into the container. And by the way, I'm going to tag it as this. Right. And then another service says, hey, I need to grab, grab any, everything that has this tag right. name and I will handle them this way. Like I will provide them to my user as a XYZ. Right. So as a package developer, it can be really powerful the way that you tag it and then you resolve the service, um, you know, maybe in your application, you're, you're consuming a, pa a Laravel package. Interesting. Okay. Um, the that service helps me could a lot. consume your tag or something. Yep. That helps know. me a lot. Yeah. Very cool. That, that just gave me a whole bunch of ideas. Okay. That yeah. makes, that makes it much more clear. What kind of, what the, <laughs> cause you know, my idea was like, okay, this service tags it and then it consumes itself. Well, it's like, not really like there, there's no point in tagging it if it's literally just the one yeah. thing. 
you know it, it needs to be a collection of things otherwise what's the point of doing a tag if yeah. it's literally just the one okay yeah sorry we'll yeah that and that in, in the middleware thing that's just kind of an example of how i might do it and then i'd have other middlewares that are tagged for my you know client that i just want to resolve all these middlewares and it's just kind of a, you don't have to use tags to do that you can just new them up inside of your when you're resolving your uh, guzzle client that's fine it's just kind of a cute little way to do it i guess <laughs> Here's why this is genius. Yeah. Let me let me try and give a concrete example here of where I think this could be used. I have an app that I help maintain where every visit that comes in, we have a number of different things that we need to track on that visit. So I have something in the container called Visit Tracker, and what it'll do is, based on what route they come in on, I have a specific middleware that runs. It's a middleware stack, and it will go through and it says, detect request location, detect request IP, detect request country, detect request language, detect request type, detect request device. Is it mobile? Is it desktop? Is it tablet? You know, are they coming from Japan? Are they on a language that's Arabic? Are they all these different things, right? So I have this little, this big middleware stack. But every time I want to do a new one, what I have to do is I have to go and I have to modify the web stack middleware or, or whatever it is. I have to you know, create that new middleware and I have to do that manually. So one thing that maybe I could do with this is I could just tag this new middleware and it would automatically basically add itself to that stack of middlewares that it needs to be, that these requests need to be run through. So in the case that I, yeah. I have a developer that you know, doesn't know where, or maybe it's buried in five different places in the code where you have to go manually update these things, it would be much easier to tell a developer, hey, listen, if you need a couple new attributes on this visit tracker, all you have to do is make a new middleware, bind it into the container and tag it, and it'll automatically be added to that stack. That seems, is, is, that, is, that, a, uh, is that a, like, a reasonable solution is that is that kind of what you could use it for i think so i think what you should do is experiment with it and then just back it out if it if it doesn't feel right you know and i would love sure i guess what i'm asking is is that a correct understanding of the tagging idea I mean, or is the that tagging is really just you know it'll just give you back a collection of services basically that's all it is in simple terms it's just this service is tagged and if i want to get all of these services that have the same tag okay. it will i will get them in a um a way that I can iterate through them. So you can do it. You can do it one of two ways. You could manually add it to, you know, a key yep. in a config. Yep, that's it. So or instead of resolving a specific tags. instance of something out of the container, mm -hmm. you resolve the tags, and that gives you an iterable list of those different services. I think the real powerful use case for tags is what I mentioned. It's you're you're providing some kind of package mm -hmm. and the developer necessarily doesn't have access to the source code and you might want to add a little functionality to that package. You could use a tag if it's a Laravel specific project. Very cool. Well, that is, I mean, this whole podcast has been worth it for me if I just understand a little bit better what tags are and that is extremely helpful. So thank you very much for taking the time to <laughs> explain that to me. Last time it was Docker with TJ. He gave me a little crash course. And this time it's tags with Paul. So thanks a lot. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, Michael, maybe you could, uh, we're, they were kind of through our list of HTTP request stuff. Maybe you could kind of uh, handle some of these miscellaneous things here. Uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about foreign key constraints and, and kind of what uh, what that was like on Twitter today. Yeah, I think it was uh, Laracast, the Laracast Twitter account tweeted something along the lines of, yeah, it was, so what are your thoughts on foreign key constraints? Always use them? Prefer handling cascades with PHP? Yes. I'm interested to hear this, gentlemen. Who wants to start? Basically, uh, um, 
my take on it was it's kind of a, something that's happening right now in in the current uh, company I'm working in. I started building a lot of stuff out in Laravel. It's pretty apparent that we need a really big service layer as well. So some of the stuff that I just busted out really quickly in Laravel, we're going to actually take back to a service. So having those foreign key constraints in the database is going to make it so much easier to trans. We're probably moving it to a Java service. So you could imagine you'd have to translate all that code over to another language. And this probably doesn't happen a lot to, to a lot of developers. But um, in my case, it, it, it does happen where you'll take something and run it in the same database for a little while and eventually migrate it away into a service. So in that case, I think foreign key constraints are a must. And let's let's real quickly here, uh, I never want to assume, you know, we had talked just a little bit about Jeffrey and Taylor and how they we very much appreciate their ability to kind of go back into the shoes of people who don't understand everything that they do. So just for the sake of our other listeners, who wants to take a stab at explaining what foreign key constraints are and kind of what it is that we're talking about? TJ, you want to take that one? We haven't heard from you. Yeah, sure. So foreign key constraints are basically setting up relations across your database. So you could say that, like, let's say you have a user and a user owns, or here, let's do users and payments. So a user has a payment. So in your payment record, you would probably have a column for user underscore ID to relate that back. So what you would do is you would make that user ID on the payments database. You would say that that is, you know, related to the ID column on a user. And then what you can also do is you can say cascade on delete. So if you delete that user, it deletes all of the statement records. Good explanation. So really what we're talking about here is where do those constraints live? Do those constraints live in the database layer? Do they live in your do they live in your head? Because that happens a lot too. Or do they live in your PHP code? And is your PHP code the thing that is responsible for making sure that those rules are respected? So that's really kind of the argument that we're talking about here. Where do those things live and where are they most useful to live? Paul has basically made the argument here that you know, if you put them in the database, the database is responsible for them, which allows that database essentially to be portable. You could use it in PHP, you could use it in Java, you can use it in multiple different places, but those rules will be respected because whatever is consuming that database has to play by the database's rules, right? Yes, and I'm basically, uh, I don't, I try not to put a ton of logic into the database, but in this case, I, I don't feel like it's necessarily a ton of logic. It's just, um, you, know, you know, when I delete this thing, I just clean, clean it up uh, afterwards. The one thing I will say is uh, on some applications, I, I kind of forgot to add some foreign keys when I was just kind of hacking at it mm -hmm. and had a bunch of tests and then went back and added foreign keys and my tests blew up so i think that's something to uh it's just you have to learn when you start using them i say use them early just because later if you want to add them it can get really complicated because now you have the way that you build data up in your tests uh, changes because now you have to respect those constraints yeah so with with the constraint it means that for example if you with the test example if you created a payment and you didn't set the the user id to be nullable you had maybe a user that had been deleted at some point, you're now going to have the, the database blow up at you because you're referencing a user ID that doesn't exist. So it, ver it, it basically enforces integrity of your data so that you don't have a reference to a user that doesn't exist. You don't have any you know, orphaned or dangling payment That's a good records. way to describe it, yeah. So, that, and that's, yeah. And, and I mean, when we spoke about 
that the down method I think was on on Laravel news where you know Laravel 5.5 won't run the down migration if it doesn't exist and we sort of talked about preferring to roll forward rather than roll back any migrations this is going to help enforce that as well you don't have to worry about things being deleted if you add a foreign key and then you subsequently try and remove it um, or you try and remove some data rather your foreign keys are going to get very angry at you and you're going to have all kinds of issues. Um, another thing I would bring up, and I know payments is just the example we're using, but in a, a real app, uh, you probably wouldn't want to delete payments. So um, you might have a little bit of a different rule around that specific piece of data or you're duplicating the data. You have a transaction of it, um, you know, a receipt, if you will. So sometimes in those cases, I'll just use like a soft delete on the user so that uh, the user's not active anymore. But I, I, you know, my business probably wants those records. So it doesn't make sense to delete them. So it's, it's just a case by case basis. You know, you have to kind of yeah. use your brain a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, for sure. That, that, that was what was just on the top of my head. But yeah, I, I probably wouldn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. And, but, I knew that was. No, 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 no. It's good. I know Michael's going to jump in here with a plug for a package. Michael, do you have a. This, package. What do yeah. you think? You're gonna. I don't look. I wrote. I wrote this package that yeah. that allows you to cascade soft delete. So if you have your, you know, your user, and you have the user set to soft delete, it will then go and load any relationships that you define, and it will go and delete them. As much as it is nice, you know that that was built specifically for soft deletes. I would, wherever possible, not do that. It is woefully inefficient to do that kind of stuff at the application level it does not support like a many-to-many at all because as you start nesting your soft deletes you know you've got to load the user but then you have to go and load all the posts and then you have to go for each of the posts go and load all of the tags you can't just run the delete at the you know you can't do a delete from where because then you're not loading any subsequent relationships that have the cascade attached to it. So suddenly you're loading like a hundred records and you're doing deletes on them all the way down and you have to go right to the bottom of the stack and work your way back up. So you don't delete anything. You know, you don't delete a parent before yeah. you remove the child. You know, this is this is generally speaking why I would just do it in the database wherever possible. I mean, in Paul's example, if you need to soft delete, you would probably have the application level logic to handle whatever needs to happen there. I mean, you might even, if you want to get crazy, do like a, a database trigger. You know, when you when you set the deleted at column on your user, it would go and form some operation on, you know, on the payment payment table that is related to it. Yeah, wherever possible, I try not to do it. I'm, I might even in that case, just like deactivate the user, have some kind of flag or mm. boolean saying deactivate them, not even delete them. You know, they just can't, they can't use our system anymore, but we need yeah. to keep track of all their payments. Yeah. I mean, you always need to do that for audit and for what tax or whatever. So it is 100% case by case. Yeah. You know, you decide as a developer when you need to delete things. And the nice thing about that is that if you need to retain that kind of, I guess, transaction data, there are when you set your foreign key, you've got on cascade and on delete. No, on update and on delete. And then you can cascade, you can delete, or you can set null. So, you know, if you were to delete the, you know, some parent record, you could cascade a set null. And that way you've still got some kind of anonymized, I guess, data, depending on, on what it is. And that that's useful in a lot of cases. The restrict is useful if you, you know, never want to delete some record based on some other relationship and you know cascade is nice if you if you don't care about that data you know if you 
if you delete a user from your site and you want to also delete their profile, well, you'd probably cascade then. But, you know, some other things you might restrict and you should probably catch those kind of exceptions in your application or, you know, your test would catch that. And I think Adam covers a lot of that in his course as well. Is restrict something that you can set in your migration? Yes. Yep. Okay. As I was going to say, you know, thankfully... You know, for those of you whose heads are spinning, whose heads are spinning like, oh my gosh, this is all this whole new thing I have to learn here. You know, Laravel does make this pretty simple. So in your migrations, hopefully you're using migrations. I can't imagine you wouldn't be. If you're on the Laravel train, you're using migrations. And if you're not, shame on you. Okay. Soapbox over. Um <laughs> your migration shaming. If, uh, <laughs> yeah, in your migrations, it should be easy enough to say, um, I think you say like foreign key and then you tell it what foreign key it is. And then, uh, you know, as Michael is saying, you can either cascade delete or you can restrict. Now I will, as I was just doing migration shaming, I will now shame myself, wear my cloak of shame here. I, you know, I had some of the same problems that you guys are talking about with the, basically the huge pain in the butt it can be if you're setting up foreign key constraints where you literally have to have a record in your database for the user if you are going to create a payment, whatever. And that was so annoying to me that I just said, you know what? Screw it. My application is going to enforce the integrity of yeah. this thing, not the database. If I want to delete a freaking payment, if I want to delete a user and leave all the payments, I'm going to delete a user. I'm going to leave the payments. Don't database. Don't you dare scream at me. That is the most frustrating thing in the world to me. It was like when I'm trying to save something and the database is like, yeah. you can't do that. I'm like, screw you. Yes, again, I can do whatever I want. I'm the developer. Don't you tell me what I can do. So this, this is where making those child relationship or this chart here, the child columns. So your user underscore ID in the payments table, you would make that nullable. And then on your, um, on delete, you would just say set null, like literally set space null. And that way you can delete the user and all of the records that are attached to it would, would you know, just get set to null. Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of... Now, here's my question. Can I make a payment in the database with a null user ID then? Correct. Yep. As long as you define that column as nullable. Right. So in my test, I can do that. Okay. Yeah. So... Well, that's helpful. And that's, and, and that's helpful for the case where you might create some record that you would later attach to something, like a media... Because yeah. that was the issue. Yeah. If you were uploading photos or something and Adam... Adam and um, David Hemphill talked about this on the, the most recent Full Stack Radio where you might upload an image and then return back a media ID and then link it that way. So you might store like some linking data. I, I did that on my blog a little while ago where I would upload the media, I would return the ID and then when I post, I would then link back to the post because the post doesn't exist yet, for example. Right, exactly. That's the exact case I'm talking about here. Yeah, you have to be able to create the media first. And it was like, that. I could never figure that around. Yeah. I, I, so that's the key. That is the key that unlocks the box here is that if you make that foreign key constraint nullable, <laughs> then you are able to create that record before the parent exists. That's what I needed. Because, you know, sometimes these nested relationships are, are six entities long. Yeah. You know what I mean? The OAuth token belongs to a provider, which belongs to a user, which belongs to a, I mean, that's, that's a terrible example. Uh, let me make a better one. An analysis belongs to a PR, which belongs to a repo, which belongs to a user. Or I'm sorry, which belongs to a provider, which belongs to a user. So you've got that entire thing that you've got to build. If you want to test the analysis, you have to start at the bottom and the turtles all the way, you know, what do they say? Turtles all the way down? I mean, you literally have to build that entire thing before you can test the very bottom of it. Yeah. 
And with and here's the deal, like in Laravel, they make it easy with the factory model, you know, model factories to just do make instead of create, mm -hmm. which just creates it in memory, which is fine. Problem is you can't query relations if it's not in the database. Yep. You know what I'm saying? You can't do any relationship queries from the model if it's not saved in the database. So you have to do create. Yep. If that is wrong, somebody listening to this, please correct me. Please tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that is not the case and I will be in love. Well, I'm a married man. I probably won't be in love. But uh, no, I've, I mean, yeah. I've, I've had to build methods on my tests just to deal with crap like that, where it was just I have to do this so much. I have to like factory all these objects, uh, you know, just whatever the method name makes sense to do, like just uh, give it as minimal info as possible and then have it build up, you know, all of these records Got so it. that I avoid those uh, foreign key constraint errors in my tests. So. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, What Michael was just talking about, I mean, what, actually what we've all been just talking about as far as like making things nullable, I've I've kind of flipped you know, some of my theory on databases, I would, I never used to use foreign key constraints because it just always seemed like a pain. And then I would get really like really detailed on what things are nullable. Ditto. And now I, I pretty much make everything nullable and have started adding in foreign key constraints and just letting like that way, you know, if my, you know, business yeah. use case changes for the application, I don't have to mess with the database. I just change the application logic and, now I can insert whatever, however, and then by making everything nullable and, you know, handling however the cascading needs to be for that specific use case has made using foreign key constraints a lot easier. And my databases have stayed so much more tidy. Thank you. That is exactly what I needed. You guys have given me two huge things today that I can walk away with this podcast and be like, this is totally worth it. Not that it's never, not that it's ever not worth it. But those two, th I mean, tags and this alone are huge, huge for me. I was going to say this reminds me sort of like the discussion around whether you use uh, the protected fillable method or the protected guarded method on your models. You know, a lot of these developers I've heard say, you know, protected guarded equals empty array, right, on their mm -hmm. base model. So it's literally like, model, don't you at all be concerned with what I can or cannot save to the model? Like, don't ever give me this mass assignment exception. And that's really kind of what it feels like when you make everything nullable in your database. And I've kind of started doing that too, TJ, because it's the most frustrating thing in the world when I'm like, okay, let's new, let's new this object. Okay, save. And it's like, it doesn't have this one field. I'm like, come on. Like for this one use case, use case yeah. I don't have that field yet. I don't, I don't know. So it's like, you know, that can be super frustrating when that happens. And it's like, okay, now you got to find a way to work around that. Like, how can I get that in the object before I save it? I mean, I'm, I'm going to know it in like two seconds here, but I don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So by making yeah, I think it was on, I think I I picked that up from I think an episode of Full Stack Radio where Taylor was on and they were kind of talking about like clean code and kind of how they their their philosophy on how they code and Taylor was like yeah I just you know the the reason that that was there in the first place was for in cases where you have people on their team you know newer developers who are just blindly passing mm -hmm. in the request in your controller into the model to create it. You know, this kind of builds some safety to it. But, you know, if you're working with more experienced developers or on a team where, you know, you're really working with your junior devs and you're specifying, you know, the keys out of your request into, you know, a create method, you're never going to have to worry about it. Yeah, put that up, put that logic and make it explicit in your controllers. Like I am explicitly sending post title, post body, post, you know, publish date, whatever. And, and let your model just be unguarded. And as long as you are diligent about what you are putting into those, you know, it's only the create and the fill and the update methods 
as far it might be the new new i think new model instance might be a laravel 5.5 thing but as long as you are diligent about what you are putting in there and you're not just blindly shoving the entire you know request all into that those methods then you you will be fine totally agreed totally agreed guys i hate to be the uh i hate to be the you know the guy that buzz kills everybody or like the harshing on your buzz or whatever <laughs> for the sake of our listeners i'm going to uh give us a Anybody have any final comments thing before we sign off on this one? So this is your chance. If you have anything really important you want to say. And then also something that we haven't done before that I'm going to give TJ and Paul the chance to do is just you know, let us know, number one, how we can get in touch with them, like what your handles are for Twitter and uh, something that Chris Coyer does on his show. But they always say, how can we get in touch with you and how can we give you money? So I'm going to give you guys a chance to plug something too because I know Paul's got some books and stuff out there. So Shop Talk. Shop Talk Show. Thank you. So uh, TJ, well, you're the you're the veteran of two times here, so let's give you a chance first. Um, and first of all, any final thoughts? I know. I think we covered a lot. Excellent. Okay, second. How can we get in touch with you? How can we follow you? Uh, easiest way, hit me on Twitter. It's S-I-X-L-I-V-3. So like six and, live uh, or six live, or but with a three at the yeah, end. Yeah, six, six live, but with a three. Okay, cool. So at six live uh, or at six L I V three. Okay, and then how can we give you money? Do you have anything oh, man, that we can? Do you have anything that you're working on that you that you want uh, to plug not, here? Not really. I've got a couple things in the works, but uh, nothing, nothing to give me money. Okay, right now. cool. All right, Paul. What do we got for you? What? How can we get in touch with you? How can we follow you? Sure. Um, so on Twitter, I'm uh, Paul Redmond. That's R E D M O N D, just like Redmond Washington is how I usually have to explain it to people. Uh, I get a lot of red man, but, uh, <laughs> so Paul Redmond is my Twitter handle. Um, yeah, that's probably the, the only social media I use. What's a, what, how can we give you money? So, um, I would, first of all, I'd, I would love to, if you guys are willing come back on and talk a bit about my, my Docker book that's I'm working on right now. I mean, I'll just throw that out there. I'd, I'd love to come back on and just chat about it. So that's really, I guess, not right now, but uh, I'm working on getting an early release and it's going to be like pretty much beta stuff. But uh, I just want to like try the LeanPub way and just ship it early and um, get some reader feedback a lot earlier. Cool. So um, you can, uh, it's probably like linked in my, it's like a pinned tweet on my Twitter. It's just uh, Docker for PHP developers is what I'm working on. And I've been using Docker as a workflow for like two years and I've kind of cut my teeth on it. Uh, I don't think I'm, it's perfect, but uh, I, I definitely have a PHP specific take on Docker and how to make it work for your your dev workflow. And uh, I, I mean, I still use Valet all the time, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, so that's what my big project is outside of work is just Docker for PHP cool. developers. You had mentioned a book that you wrote before as well. What's the, what's the name of that book? Where can we get that at? So that so that is uh, originally ebook on LeanPub, uh, writing APIs with Lumen, and uh, A Press picked it up, and so it's uh, it's Lumen programming guide okay. is what it is. It's a very a very niche book. It was my first book, and I, it was just something I was passionate about when I was writing some services sure. with it. So I just wanted to see if I could finish a book, and the reception was really good in the ebook. So um, yeah, awesome. Cool. Okay, sounds good. Michael, it has been another episode, my friend. Man, it's a great episode. We've, uh, episode twenty-seven. It has. It has been a really good one. It's a long one, yeah. man. I we've covered a lot. I hope. I hope that everyone's learnt a lot. I hope we didn't leave anyone behind with anything. But um, you know, as always, reach out to us if you need us to help you with anything. We are more than willing to do that. Yeah, Aus- absolutely, Mister Mister Aussie Man, Michael. I'm gonna let you sign us out of this one, my friend. All episode right. twenty-seven. Just as a reminder. All right. 
well, thank you for listening, everyone. This has been North Meets South episode 27. We are at North South Audio on Twitter, or you can reach Jake and myself at our personal Twitter accounts as well. Show notes for this episode will be at northmeetsouth.audio forward slash 27. And if you could please like, rate, and review us five stars in your podcatcher of choice, that would be much appreciated. Nice. Nailed it. Wow. I should have you do that every time. (laughs) Every time. You're so much better at that than I am. All right. Well, hey, guys. Thanks again for coming on, TJ and Paul. It was great talking to you guys. I'm sure we'll have you on again sometime in the future. No, you're welcome. All right. I had a blast. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Michael, until next time, my friend. Take it easy. That's right. You don't you don't say your uh, foreign goodbyes on this no, show. That's foreign goodbyes. But I did learn, I guess, Dutch slash Flemish for when we have Freik on. So be ready for that one. All right. Sweet. All right. I'll be ready. Like that. One day I was walking and I found this big log. Then I rolled the log over. Underneath was a tiny little stick. And I was like, that log had a child. Someday when you are older, you could get hit by a boulder. While you're lying there screaming, come help me, please, the seagulls. Both your knees. Stop it now. Bonus, bonus content. Bonus content. All right. So here is my setup. I should show you guys this. I have my I'm my MacBook. I, I realized about five minutes before the podcast that I do not have internet at this house yet. We just moved on Monday. Do not have internet here. I am getting fiber next week. Cha-ching. Jerk. But don't have internet. So I, I'm like, okay, I need to use my phone to tether. I have 1% on my phone. Oh. And I need to find a place to record. Um, my children and wife are sleeping in the room behind me because we don't have all of their beds put together yet. And so they're all in the big master bedroom. I am in the closet recording. I have a wire run under the door for my laptop because there's no plugs in here. Uh, I have my phone plugged into my Mac so that it can charge and it's tethered. And then I am sitting on a folding chair and I have my computer and my mic on a wooden crate that I built for kids toys. So I am like full out committed to this podcast, man. You are hundred percent. I mean, you've you've been up at three a.m. for Laravel News. You you you're recording yep. in a closet for this oh, show. Man. Let no one ever say yes, that you don't that care. I am not committed. I am committed. Okay, that's my bon. That's your bonus content for this week. All done. Glorious.